Well, I had a beard for a while, and then I didn't. And I went with a mustache because I thought it made me look like a, a police officer. And, uh, it's good to present a, an image of authority in the peloton. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast. The weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in, because we're about to begin. Yo ho, welcome to episode 85 of the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking about beards and stashes. Hey there, semi pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi Pro Cycling, home of the Semi Pro Cyclist. And to get us underway today, yes, a quick review. Five out of five stars by Webby on Stitcher. Ripper Podcast, the best cycling has to offer. I've trawled through just about all cycling podcasts available, and this one is the cream of the crop. Super informative, well-structured, cutting-edge topics, and no rambling like a lot of other shows. A+. Wow, Webby, I really appreciate you taking the time out to go and write that review. It really, really does mean a lot to me. And a reminder to you that if you do like the show, please take some time out to write a review either on Stitcher or iTunes because five stars make me go... Oh, my gosh! Oh, my gosh! Oh, my gosh! Well, not quite, but definitely thank you very much. Now, a couple of articles this week that I have come across. The first one is talking about mouth rinses. And if you're familiar with mouth rinses, you would know that over the last couple of years, they have been gaining traction because they've been used by national bodies in preparation for big events like the 2012 Olympics. Now, I think the studies are starting to come out and they're talking about what are the most effective substances to actually use when you're rinsing your mouth. And the study that I've tracked down this week is called The Effect of a Caffeinated Mouth Rinse on Endurance Cycling Time Trial Performance. And so, as you can guess, it's all about using caffeine to rinse during a ride to see the effect on your performance. There was 10 well-trained male cyclists completing this experiment, and they completed two time trials following 24 hours of dietary and exercise standardization. They were trying to complete a time trial in the fastest time possible, which was the equivalent work to cycling at 75% of peak aerobic power for 60 minutes. They were administered 25 milliliters of mouth rinse and they had to do the mouth rinsing for 10 seconds. And it either contained a placebo or a 35 milligram caffeine substance. So... They did it eight times throughout the time trial and they recorded the RPE and the physiological variables during the entire test. The outcome, no significant improvement in time trial performance was observed with caffeine compared to placebo and no elevation in plasma caffeine was detected due to the mouth rinse conditions. So the conclusion to me really is... Just drink your coffee instead. Now, Article 2 is an interview between two gun cyclists, Boonin and Cancellara. It's on the trekfactoryracing.com website, and it's a really fascinating look into their rivalry and their relationship. I've got to say, though, reading through this, it really confirms why I love this sport, because here you have two fierce rivals on the bike, but as soon as they're sitting next to each other talking, they are only talking respect about each other and the way they ride and how hard it is. And if you don't win on the day, then all you have to do is congratulate the person and do better next time. It's pretty amazing 
considering how much bullshit is usually out there when it comes to rivalries at the top of any other sports. So it's really refreshing and it's a reminder to me that let your legs do the talking, no bravado, no shit talking, just absolutely put it down when it counts and that is going to make the difference to whether you're respected out in a race or not. And the final bit of information I came across this week is a free sports and building aerodynamics course from Edhoven University of Technology. Forget about the building stuff. Just concentrate on the sports. It's a six-week course of four to six hours of work per week. And it goes through some really, really fascinating stuff when it comes to aerodynamics and explains the basics and then gets a little bit more detailed from there. So they go through wind tunnel testing, how it's performed, what are the most important quality issues. It goes through computational fluid dynamic simulations. CFD is an absolute buzzword at the moment because this is the way that people are able to cut costs and test their products. They cover how to perform these, what's most important to perform these, how wind flow affects cycling speed, how temperature and altitude affects cycling times, how drafting affects aerodynamic resistance. All these insights go into give you an understanding of how to get better performance through the understanding of aerodynamics. Really fascinating stuff. And if you are wanting to geek out on aerodynamics, I think you can totally get your nerdery on right here in this course. It looks super pro, so I would highly recommend you check it out. Alrighty, the nuts and bolts this week, a peek into sportifs and epic adventures. You'll find out why that title is a really bad pun in just a moment, but this week, we're talking about epics, adventures, sportives, because the big daddy of all Australian sportives is on this weekend, the Three Peaks. Get it? In Victoria, Australia, if that means nothing to you, either because you're not interested or you're not in Australia, keep listening because we will cover some lessons that you can apply to any epic ride. And I'll put up some photos of the Three Peaks on the post page so you can have an idea of how cool this event is in the Victorian Alps. Also... My apologies in advance because I do indulge just a little bit when we go hyper-local talking about my favorite training climb in my hometown, which, by the way, is called Black Mountain. And I have one interesting story about it, which happened recently in December of 2013. A guy, a local rider by the name of Brendan Trekkie Johnson, rode it over 38 times. To understand the magnitude of this effort, it was a challenge put down to raise awareness and money for testicular cancer, which Trekkie unfortunately has experienced and was diagnosed back in 2009 as a 17-year-old in the Australian national team just before the mountain bike world champs were in Canberra. He ended up riding the race and now has gone through the process and has bounced back, come out the other side, firing and wanting to raise awareness. But Black Mountain is 235 metres of vertical gain. So the challenge was to ride as high as Mount Everest, which has an elevation of 8,848 metres. He had to ride it 38 times. Repsforareason.net. I'll put the link in the show notes, but if you want to go there, raise money, check out the story. It is fascinating and it is hard work. So well done for getting through that, tricky. It is absolutely amazing. But back to the episode to help me talk about preparation, the ups and downs, and why we go back for more is Matt Deneef from The Climbing Cyclist. He's a three-time rider of the Three Peaks event, a cycling blogger, and a Victorian mountain connoisseur. So I got him on the show to discuss his experience about surviving epic rides. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Damon. Thanks for having me on. 
Today I briefly want to touch on the Three Peaks event because it's happening this weekend in Victoria, Australia. And I think you've ridden it three times, is that right? That's right, yeah, three times. I uh, actually entered it uh, all four times the first four years and the first year I went along and had a mechanical five kilometres into the ride and managed to get probably 100 k's in but had to bail after that. So it wasn't a greater start to my, my Three Peaks career, but yeah, I finished it three times since then. Because that's the interesting thing because there has been some ups and downs. It hasn't been totally kind to you, which is sort of interesting to talk about as well. But I want to use the Three Peaks itself as a kind of jump-off point to talk about sportists in general and self-created epics and, of course, climbing and exploring, which I know you love. Absolutely. First up, what's your general approach to riding long sportives like Three Peaks? I do notice that they have a ride plan and you've put together a ride plan for the adjusted route last year. Essentially, it's just a running sheet with times based on average speed. How do you put this together and how do you use it during the ride? I guess the first thing to say there is that uh, that that ride guide that I put together for Three Peaks, and indeed I did one for this year as well, that's very much geared towards the rider that's looking to set a particular time, whether that might be uh, eight hours, nine hours, ten hours, whatever it might be. But it's also useful, I guess, for the person that's just trying to finish inside the time cut of 13 hours and what it gives you is a bit of a breakdown of where you need to be at each time and how long you can spend at the rest stops. And I guess it gives you a bit of a, a checkpoint along the way just to aim for so that you can break it up into manageable chunks rather than one huge 235-kilometer ride. And putting that together was a, a very much a process of trial and error. So I've done a lot of the, the roads in Three Peaks a lot of times and done the Three Peaks route a few times myself, as, as we discussed. So I was able to go back through my Strava files and work out how long it had taken me to do those particular sections and how long it had taken me to do the overall route and plug those in as a kind of benchmark for where I thought I was, about 10 hours, and then kind of extrapolate outwards from there. So I went back towards eight hours by cutting out some time and then moved it out towards 13 hours by adding time. And it was a process of trial and error, I guess, in um, adding time here and there and cutting some time from breaks. Um, eventually got it all to balance out and then sent it off to a bunch of mates who had done the ride themselves and just kind of said to them, look, do you reckon this is realistic? Um, went back and forth a couple of times and then arrived at something I was really happy with. Do you ever use any other metrics like power or heart rate to get through these rides? Uh, personally, uh, I've use a heart rate monitor whenever I ride. I haven't got a power meter, but I tend not to look at it too much on a long ride like this. So I think well, for, for me personally, I do it mainly just by feel. I know if I'm pushing too hard, I know what it feels like if I'm pushing at an intensity that I'm not going to be able to sustain for 10 hours or whatever the ride is. So I guess the heart rate monitor is there just as a kind of check so that I can uh, look down and see, all right, I'm doing about 150 beats a minute here. I know this is sustainable for the whole day kind of thing, but there might be times where I'm on a climb where I'm thinking, I oh, maybe working a little bit hard here. I'll have a quick check. Yep. I'm, I'm far too close to threshold here. Let's back this right off. I've got a long way to go. So it's more there as a kind of, I guess, a check and a balance rather than anything that I ride to religiously throughout the whole day. Yeah, I think um, the danger with any long epics is getting carried away at the start. And it's only by experience that you kind of learn how to pace yourself over time. But even then, you can get carried away, I think, with the emotion at certain times during those rides. So having some type of check, I think, is is worthwhile. Mm. Let's talk about the extremes for a second because it's pretty hard to plan for every type of weather condition that's going to happen. 
And on the flip side of that, you don't have much room to carry things anyway. So if we're talking about extreme hot or extreme cold, how do you prepare and what do you take with you without sort of getting the racks and panniers out and um, getting mm. all prepared for a big tour? What do you pack? I guess it depends firstly on where the ride is. So something like Three Peaks obviously takes place in the Victorian Alps. So being an alpine environment, you know the weather's quite variable. It can change from being a beautiful sunny day to being horrible, rainy, overcast, freezing conditions in the space of half an hour. And you're going through a range of different altitudes there, obviously, from the top of mountains through to valleys. So you've got to be prepared for, for pretty much everything. So in that kind of ride, I'll always take, obviously, a rain jacket with me, possibly arm warmers as well. And Three Peaks and other rides as well often have a, a valet service where you might be able to check in some, some spare clothing to the halfway point. I know a lot of people use that as an opportunity to take in even a new set of nicks and, and a jersey as well just to kind of freshen up halfway through the ride. But I think, yeah, the first consideration is always for the weather and, and where the ride is and, and just being sensible with it. You know, it might be a perfect day at the start. It might be looking like the uh, forecast is going to be perfect, but um, things can change very quickly, particularly when you're up in the, the high Alps like that. Do you pack anything like a space blanket or any real emergency things or like a first aid kit or anything like that? Something like Three Peaks, no, because it is well supported and there are marshals and volunteers and, and follow cars out on course. So the the danger of getting into a situation where you need to support yourself overnight uh, is extremely rare. There's so many people out on course as well that should you get into any difficulty, I think there's more than enough people around that would be able to help you out or, or point you in the right direction, I guess. But in the case of uh, maybe a self-supported ride, epic ride out in, in these kind of environments, yeah, certainly need to take more precautions and, and pack more, uh, more rigorously and, and I guess make sure you've got um, either somebody there to support you, whether that's in a support vehicle or at least somebody that, that knows where you are and knows where you're going to be so that if you're not at a certain place by an arranged time, for example, that they can come looking for you or or something like that. Um, this kind of reminds me of a, a mate of mine who um, did a ride just recently to ride uh, all the seven peaks in Victoria in one solid ride. So it was over 90 hours he did this long 1,200-kilometer mm-hmm. ride uh, ridiculously epic, crazy, um, yeah. but amazing as well. And he got stuck on the first night where he only took three spare tubes with him. He punctured three times, couldn't repair his his tire, his tubes, and got stuck out on a dirt road at the top of a mountain for three hours. Had no mobile phone reception, so he had to wait for his support crew, which were a couple hundred k's down the road, to realise that he was missing and come and find him and. By the time they found him, he'd resigned himself to the fact that he was going to have to sleep curled up in a ball by the side of the road um, just with his rain jacket around him and just he was just shivering there in the cold and it was, it was just lucky that they kind of chanced upon him when they did because it was starting to get very cold and it, it might have been pretty bleak for him. That's kind of the nightmare scenario that you picture <laughs> when it doesn't go yeah. right. Yeah, that's pretty funny. Um, well, not funny, funny, but <laughs> um, pretty horrible, actually. But but a bit of a bummer on the first climb of, of the epic, though, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, 
he, he wrote a really good report of the uh, of that ride on the Cycling Tips website, and he spoke about how being so early into a long ride that he'd allowed 95 hours to complete. It was only, I guess, five hours in, something like that, and he was already, you know, he was talking about how he wasn't going to be able to finish it, and at the very least, he was a long way behind schedule, and I think when you bite off something that huge, getting behind so early on is just a, such a huge setback, not only in terms of the distance you've got to cover, but just mentally as well, just knowing that you know you're not where you're supposed to be, you're behind, and uh, it takes it takes a fair bit of uh, of guts, I think, to kind of pull yourself out of that and then get back on track and then go on to finish it. So yeah, absolutely, total kudos for for finishing the ride off. So back to packing and this time food. How do you account mm. for stops? Do you pack your own food or do you just wait until you get to a feed station? Well, again, I guess it depends on the ride you're doing. But if we, we talk about Three Peaks, which is coming up, there are designated rest spots where they have food available. And I think planning ahead to, to know where you're going to spend time is, is worthwhile. And obviously, sometimes things don't go according to plan. You might be having a bad day or you might feel really good and you might ride through a rest stop that you, you plan to stop at. But I think having an idea of where those stops are is crucial so that you can pack the right amount of food and and as as well kind of give yourself those little chunks that help break the ride down but the three peaks is quite good again we talked before about the the rider valet service where you can put a bag in and they give it to you halfway through that's really helpful in being able to give you enough food that you can give to them and then it's it's just there waiting for you halfway some people will like to carry a musette with some with some extra food in it others just don't need to eat that much on a long ride like that. They might have carbo-loaded ridiculously the, the night before. Um, I think a lot of it's just down to personal preference, but a big part of it is obviously planning and knowing what you're capable of and what your body's capable of and what the ride looks like and where those rest stops are. Yeah, I definitely think that planning is a big thing as well and then being very strict with yourself on the day because it's so easy to get carried away, see the feed station coming up and just convince yourself that you can just keep going just that little bit further, that little bit further. I know I've definitely done it where I've, I should have stopped but I've kept going because I've wanted to have a good time. How do you minimize time spent at feed stations? Yeah, I think absolutely if you're going for a goal time in a ride like this then the the feed stops or what's, what's going to kill you. Um, it's not the kind of being slow up a climb or anything like that. It's getting to a rest stop after five hours and just thinking you might sit down for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour, turns into an hour. And not only have you lost an hour then, but by the time you get back on your bike, your body's decided, oh, it's time to rest. And so getting started again is even more painful. So I think planning something like that out, and again, we're talking about if you've you've got a distinct time goal in mind here rather than just trying to finish a ride like three peaks but if you've got a distinct goal time in mind you've got to be very strict with yourself and say right i'm only stopping for two minutes at the top of Twonga gap just to fill up my water bottles i'm only stopping for 15 minutes at lunch just enough to eat the food get changed whatever it might be and then move on and be quite strict with yourself on that and i did this last time um last year's three peaks when the route was revised due to um uh, landslides and, and bushfires in the area, I told myself, right, I'm only having two minutes of this rest stop. And, and that was very hard because it was a very hot day and we were very dehydrated and it was very tempting just to sit in the shade for for a while and just kind of relax and recuperate. But it is so much harder to get going and, and you just lose that time. So I think being strict with yourself is the key. But one thing to keep in mind with that is it does change the ride completely. So 
it can actually start to become not a whole lot of fun if you're just pushing for that goal time. If you're, if that's all you're focused on, then the kind of sense of adventure and 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 taking on this this epic ride and and experiencing everything that's involved with that kind of takes a bit of a backseat to just that bloody-minded focus on, right, I have to be here at this time, I have to be doing this average speed, I have to be watching these numbers, and that's something definitely to, to be aware of if you are going to try and do it in a particular time, I think. Yeah, which if anyone listening wants to read ride reports on the different types of approaches to rides like Three Peaks, definitely go to The Climbing Cyclist because... In contrast, there's two ride reports of one where you were going for time and another one where you're trying to balance it out a little bit more and enjoy the ride and the people around you. And you're able to succeed both time and and mm. that balance, which I think was good for you to, to find that balance. It's, it is tough, I think, and those evil ride stops definitely um, <laughs> can get in the way. But let's talk about climbing now and average gradients because I think mm. average gradients are evil and deceptive. <laughs> And they can really um, set you up for failure if you're not careful. For example, just this week I was creating a race plan for one of my athletes. He's going to ride the Tour of Flanders Cyclo. And there's 14 climbs in that. And you start going through the average gradients of all these small climbs and talking about ones like the infamous Koppenberg, which it's a 9.4 average, but there's the 22 percent uh, infamous section um, that, that is the hard bit and there's another one the Tatenberg which on paper it's 6.1 average but then there's a 16 percent kicker in it mm. so how can we prepare or be better prepared for a climb rather than just relying on the average gradient well I think it all comes down to planning and um, I had a very similar experience just this weekend going when I was up in Canberra I um, was up there just for the weekend and thought I'd do a bunch of climbs up there and I'm not sure if you've done your cycling up in Canberra. That's my hometown. That's um, your hometown. There you go. Yeah. Okay. So you know far more about Canberra's climbs than I do. And <laughs> so you'll, you'll probably laugh at this. But um, so I knew there were a bunch of small climbs around towns and things like Black Mountain and uh, Mount Ainsley and Mount yep. Majura and all these kind of climbs. And I just looked at the average gradient. I thought, okay, uh, Mount Ainsley was at 8% average, something like that. That's That's manageable. I can just get into a rhythm and kind of tap that out. But what I didn't realize is that it starts off quite easily gets a little bit harder a bit harder a bit harder and by the end it's actually really hard so yeah it's a tough climb yeah and black mountain as well it's i think an average of nine percent but you know it starts off at well above ten percent flattens off a bit and then kicks again and i just wasn't prepared for that and i, I think i just got lulled into a, a false sense of security looking at a, a single digit average grade and you went oh i can i can manage that um so i think it all just comes down to planning and taking a bit of time that if you are going to do a ride like this with lots of climbs to look at the the profiles of these climbs and and, and really kind of check out what they what they max out at where the steepest bits are and and whether it is a sort of climb where you're you're going up in steps, you know, with flat bits and a steep bit, flat, steep, or if it is just an, a constant kind of average because it very different approach to riding those sort of climbs. You know, something that's quite consistent, um, you can just find a nice comfortable rhythm and just kind of uh, tap it out that way. But something that just ramps up and flattens off, very hard to get settled in that kind of thing. And if you're not expecting that, it can be a bit hard to, to know what's coming and, and to pace your efforts a little bit, I guess, because you can be tempted just to push through a steep bit and thinking that, that, you know, that it might get a bit easier, but it might not get easier. So I think just planning is the key and just, being, just knowing what you're in for 
but the other the other side of that, I mean, I've had this discussion with with mates a lot that I'll go riding with in the hills, and we'll go riding on some roads where you know there are climbs that they haven't experienced, and I'll start saying, oh, you know, the climb coming up is this, it's this long, it's this average gradient. There's a couple of kicks in here, and and sometimes people will say, oh, I don't want to know. I, you know, I'd rather not know. I just want to kind of do it because knowing about it's going to make me worry about it. And uh, I'd rather just take it as it comes. So, again, I think there's a, a bit of uh, personal preference in there and, and how you approach it. But um, if you don't want to be surprised and you want to have a good idea of what's coming up, definitely check out the profiles. And, you know, in the age of Strava and, and all these types of tools, there's no, there's no way that the information's not out there. So plenty of opportunity be, to be prepared if you want to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know, for me personally, I kind of feel... If I'm going up a hill the first time, I don't want to know. I just find out what's mm. going to happen. It seems seems just more natural and I'll be able to push that way. But then if you're going to do it two or three times, you know, like it's like if you're doing hill repeats for training, sometimes you mm. get to know the hill that well that you kind of compensate for those lulls that you have and may back off or whatever, which I think is dangerous in some ways. Yeah, how so? Well, I just think that if you're, like say Black Mountain, for example, the climb that you start, it starts very steep so you can get your heart rate going very quickly and then it plateaus out a little bit in the middle and then kicks again. Yep. So in that middle section, if you're doing it over and over again, I find myself lulling off. Like I just sort of like, whatever, I, I take a rest mm-hmm. and I wait for the next bit instead yep. of just keeping the gas down and holding it down mm. all the way and then kicking at the end. So it, for me, it becomes a bit dangerous knowing things too well. Yeah, okay. I guess too, it depends on why you're riding the climb and how you're riding it. Like if you're riding repeats and you want just a, a good solid hit out, then that's that's one thing and you know, you want to make sure you're you're on the ball all the time. But if you're just like I was, for example, visiting a climb for the first time, um, those flat bits were really good because it gave me a chance to kind of look around and check out the views and uh, you know, check out the Telstra Tower and how ridiculously imposing it is all the way up and just all that kind of thing. So I guess it depends on, on, on what you're doing and, and why you're out there in the hills in the first place. Yeah, exactly right. And if it's a really long one, then maybe you will approach it slightly differently. But uh, yeah, Black Mountain is 2.4, 2.6 or something, which you just punch out mm. fairly quickly. But yep. gradients as a whole, you have a really good breakdown of how you expect them to feel when you're looking at a, at a gradient sheet on, on the mm. site. So I'll, I'll link to that so people can check that out. You talk about the work needed as well when you go through and, and kind of discuss a little bit more, which I'm not going to sort of touch on today. I'll just kind of link to those, to those posts. Yeah. But um, sure. the gradients themselves and the climbs are the things that definitely push riders out of their comfort zone. And especially when you're making your way up a final climb, and it seems like all epics, no matter if they are sportives or self-planned or whatever, you always find yourself on a crazy last climb to try and get there. And I, <laughs> I kind of call it, you, start, you stop riding by heart rate and you start riding by heart because mm-hmm. you've really got to put it in at that point. Generally, you're physically gone, underprepared, always underprepared, you know, like it's, yeah. it's always something going into that last climb. And so you had one of these moments on the final climb up the front side of False Creek 2013, a year ago? Yeah, the last year's three peaks. Yeah, so I've got the part that you wrote here on your site and um, – I'm just quoting from your site. It had stopped being fun long ago. By this point, I was starting to question why I was even doing this ride, why I even ride a bike at all. I resolved to stop riding at least a month after Three Peaks, lest I feel 
the urge to get myself into a situation like this again. So pretty serious words <laughs> and pretty serious thoughts yeah. on the last climb of a day. But I'm sure people are very familiar with it. It's, it's something that the ups and downs of cycling. But how do you personally get through moments like this? Yeah, I mean, kind of hearing that read back, it sounds a little bit ridiculous now from the, you know, the comfort of the lounge room kind of thing. And, but I, I definitely remember at the time just being so deep in the hurt box that everything else just, it just everything becomes a blur. You've got kind of tunnel vision. Everything is hurting. You just want it to be over. It was really hot that day as well. And it was just, yeah, that was possibly the deepest I've ever gone to get through something, uh, which was quite ironic because a lot of people were saying that last year's Three Peaks was going to be a lot easier because of the route change and, you know, missing out of the back of Falls climb. But, man, the, the heat and uh, it was it was still very, very tough. So um, I think with that one, there was just a case of um, I just really had no choice. You know, f- for a start, my accommodation was at the top of the hill and my car and everything was up there, so I just had to get up there one way or the other. And we were talking before about time goals, and I'd set myself a a 10-hour time goal, and I'd been working towards that the whole day, and it had become a bit of an obsession by the end of it. You know, we are kind of the whole time for the last few hours was looking down, trying to calculate average speeds, and we got to Mount Beauty in the bottom of the last climb, and I knew I had... I think it was a little bit under two hours to get to the top of the climb and I was trying to work out the average speed that would mean and trying to factor in the steep bits and the flat bits and what I'd need to do and I think just the kind of number crunching got me through in a strange way and I know for a fact that my maths at that point was completely all over the shop. I couldn't see straight let alone calculate anything correctly but I think just giving me that to focus on and um, something to take away from the, the kind of in-the-moment experience actually really helped in a strange way, as as unenjoyable as the stress of trying to be ahead of that that goal time was. It, it did give me something to focus on. But um, there's a couple of guys that, that I know that we were riding with that um, got within less than 5Ks of the top of the ride and pulled the pin. They just couldn't do it. They just sat by the side of the road and waited for the sag wagon to come and get them, which... I'm sure sitting here now, they'd probably think, oh, I wish I could have pushed on for the last little bit. And I think that kind of, that uh, the fear of regret, I guess, in some sense is motivating as well. Like I've come this far, I've trained this much, you know, I've driven five and a half hours to get up to Falls Creek to do this ride and I've gotten 12 and a half hours into the ride or whatever it is. Why can't I just push through this last little bit? So that's definitely motivating. And I think the, the last thing as well is just, having a blog where, I, where I'm writing about doing these rides almost gives me a feeling of um, uh, obligation to finish these rides as well. Like not being able to finish three peaks the first time I did it was, was devastating as much for the fact that I had a, you know, didn't have a good story to tell um, you know, that I'd finished the ride. So I think that's been very motivating in just making sure I get through these things and um, just another factor that helped me push through what was an excruciatingly awful last uh, climb for the day. That's a very good and honest answer, I must say, because <laughs> you're bringing other factors into this, like talking about accountability, accountability mm. to, I don't know, being able to get home, firstly, but mm. accountability to writing a blog. And it's something that I experienced as well, because last year I, I put it out on the podcast that I was doing Le Tarp de Tour and mm. that extra motivation when you're, when you're, pulling on everything you can because I cracked on the last hill as well 
So I understand mm. this feeling of it just seems like the longest hour of your life and there's all these things going through your head. But also yeah. the part that you were doing the mental math and you were very familiar with the hill. So you were kind yeah. of really using the information you had to boost you, which it can go either way. I believe um, data can go either way. It can really hurt you or it can really help you. Sure. But in this case, it was it was helping you kind of really figure out how far you had to go, how long it was probably going to take and where you needed to be so you could just forget all that at some point and just concentrate on a number, you know, distill it all down to one number. Yeah, you're right. And I think um, the, the Falls Creek climb, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the, the climb from Falls Creek up, so from Mount Beauty up to Falls Creek, that last climb on three peaks last year is about 30 kilometers long. And yep. the yep. first 5Ks is, is solid climbing, then it's undulating for about 13 k's and the last 13 k's or so is very consistent climbing so five percent very consistent the whole way and i remembered as i hit that last bit of consistent climbing that there are a couple of false flats on the way up so we're talking maybe 50 meters of false flat and one short downhill that's probably again 50 meters and then it just starts climbing again but you would not believe how appealing those false flats were just knowing that there was some small bit of respite somewhere up the road and I knew they were coming but I couldn't exactly remember where and that was excruciating going oh is it just around this corner is it just around this one and of course when you get to them they're they're nothing they give you no respite at all in the grand scheme of things but I think just having those little checkpoints um, just helped to, to break it down and like I say distill it down to right this is just a case of getting through the next 5k's so I'll hit that false flat have a brief rest, I'll reset, and then I'll go for the next one. And then I know there's the hairpin bend at 6Ks to go. That's a checkpoint. And then there's the um, the Tollworth at 4Ks to go. And I'll see the village at 2Ks to go. And I think just having these little, um, little bite-sized chunks that you can break things down into really helps. And that's one of the, the biggest things overall that's helped me with rides like Three Peaks is just being able to approach a big task in – smaller pieces and and use that as a way of getting through it yeah so the lesson from there is stepping back the chunking the whole ride into sections and then kind of when you're on a hill chunking it as well mm. for a bit of sanity just on a separate note the the downhill from falls creek is very disappointing because you have to do some climbing like just you know just just <laughs> a touch it, it just for me it ruins yeah. the whole experience but that's yes. a whole other issue um so if you go through your blog, you start reading year after year these reports, well, three of them, but you always seem surprised that, you've, that you make it back every year, no, no matter mm. how you've gone the year before. So what keeps you going back for more? Well, it's a good question and one that I'm maybe on the best position to answer this year because I'm not actually doing three peaks this year for the first time in, in four years. I've had a bit of a niggling knee injury that I'm just not willing to risk aggravating any further and um, managed to have a, a stack while mountain biking a few weeks ago and I've got what I think is a couple of broken ribs. So I'm just trying Oof. to do the sensible thing and, and not push myself too hard. But I think... Three Peaks for, for me the last few years has been a bit of a cornerstone of my year. It's kind of been the thing I've built up to throughout summer and um, it's been almost the end of my season as well. You know, I don't do much racing, but as a, as a recreational rider, it's been kind of a bit of a, a lull through winter, start picking it up through, uh, through spring and then, and then it's kind of Three Peaks time and build up towards that, doing longer and longer rides and then Three Peaks is the big one and then it kind of dies off a little bit before we kind of start everything again. So 
I think just having that thing to work towards has been a really good way of focusing my writing and giving me something concrete and manageable to work towards rather than just, oh, I need to go out for a ride this weekend. It needs to be 100Ks. There's no real sense of why that is or what the context of that is. There's nothing really to work towards. But with Three Peaks, there definitely is. So I think that's that's one of the reasons. And I think also it's just it's become a real thing here in Victoria, Three Peaks. I know uh, interstate as well that people uh, come from all over to ride it now. But um, as someone who enjoys climbing and, you know, as someone who's involved in the, the cycling scene here in Victoria, it's it's just great being part of it, I think, because so many people um, within the scene are up there and all uh, – it's as as good for networking and meeting up with a lot of cool people as it is for the ride itself and and I guess another thing is that it's just great for the blog as well. It's a great story and it's it's great to be able to blog about the journey getting ready for that and the the great rides that I'm able to do preparing for it and then of course the ride itself is always ridiculously hard, so that that always should make for a good story, I think. Lots of reasons in there, and I can definitely associate with the goal of fear. I'm sure there's fear every year where you feel like you're underprepared, mm. so you've got to get training so you can actually finish the event. But I've got one little section here from just to kind of wrap up what you were talking about, being in the hurt box on that final climb. I've got just one little small paragraph about what you wrote when you finished that same event. And mm. it wasn't the same feeling of unadulterated joy and elation I felt the previous two years with the plateau and downhill finish of the regular Three Peaks route. Instead, it was a pure feeling of relief. The pain was over. I could get off my bike, finally. Mm. I think that is really interesting, and that's why I asked you why you go back, because that moment of getting off the bike is very relieving, and sometimes it's joy, mm. and sometimes it's just, get the thing away from me, I'm done. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think that last year's three peaks and that feeling of relief was as much down to the course as it was actually the experience, if that makes sense. So the, the first two years I did it and the regular three peaks route, which they're returning to this year, ends with the climb up the back of falls. Um, you reach the summit about 14 kilometers from the end of the ride and from there it's kind of mostly downhill with a few short uphills along the way. So the way I've experienced it when I've done the regular route is you get to the top of that last climb and that's when the adrenaline hits and that's when the kind of euphoria hits you and um, the next 14K is almost like a victory lap. You've done it. You can enjoy the descent knowing that you've you finished the ride. All the hard stuff is well and truly done and you get a real chance to kind of soak it all up and, and enjoy the amazing descent around the, the dam there on the Falls Creek Plateau. With the with last year's one when the route was changed and we rode straight up the front of Falls Creek, it was literally uphill to the finish the whole way and it was just that sense of relief because there was no opportunity really to to kind of uh, realise, oh, this is, you know, it's done, you know, um, now I can appreciate this. It was, okay, great, I finished it. And it was probably, I guess, half an hour later once the, the worst of the pain had subsided that um, – that kind of feeling euphoria and and uh, and joy kind of really came, and I was able to to enjoy myself again, I guess. But um, I think, yeah, like some people have complained about that back of falls with the that that descent, how you know it'd be good to finish with a a climb. But I think having that and having the the amazing descent into town is um, is really great, and that's probably been the highlight for me the last well the first two years I did it when uh, 
when it was the regular course. Yeah, having a chance to spin out kind of at the end and, and just take it in is a bit different to finishing on a steep climb and probably cramping when you're getting off the bike. Mm. And uh, Absolutely. Yeah, just trying to lie down. I'm going to wrap it up there, I think. That's, that's really got through everything that I wanted to talk about. Is there any final preparation notes that you would have for people that are riding this weekend, anything that you can advise them? Well, I think um, if you haven't done your training by this point, um, you're in all sorts of trouble. <laughs> Too late. But, um, but in terms of the ride, what we've already talked about today, uh, about chunking the ride down, I think is one of the things that's been most useful to me. And it sounds really simple, and, and it is, and it, it just it seems to work. So rather than seeing Three Peaks, the 235-kilometer ride with 4,300 meters of climbing, look at it as a series of smaller rides with breaks in between. So the way I'd approach it is Bulls Creek to Tawonga Gap, Tawonga Gap to top of Mount Hotham uh, or Dinner Plain where the lunch is, Dinner Plain to Omeo, Omeo to the back of Falls Climb and then that last climb into the finish. And just doing it that way just gives you something a bit more manageable to focus on rather than this this massive thing that um, – that can be quite overwhelming even for people that have done it a whole bunch of times. Cool. So, Matt, where can people get a hold of you if they want to get in contact or find more information out about you? So, best place is probably my website, theclimbingcyclist.com, and there's a contact page there and an about page where you can get in touch if you want. I'm on Twitter as well, at uh, Climbing Cyclist, and Facebook page as well. And I also, uh, as a day job, I work at the Cycling Tips website as the editor there, so um, Cycling Tips com.au um, where you can head to the contributors page or the contact page and get in touch with me there cool well thanks for your time and thanks for coming on the show absolute pleasure damon thank you Alrighty, the tech hacks and products section. This week, a product called Power Cranks. I don't know if you are familiar with these, but I've been doing some serious research over the last week or so. Hat tip to Sam for getting me onto them. I had heard about them before through Joe Friel, but I'd never really investigated them too deeply. Probably because they seem like a gimmick from the outside, but when you have a legit writer email you and tell you that he's been using them for years to great effect, you start to take them a little bit more seriously. When I did start looking at studies, short-term studies that have been done, it was a little disappointing because they did say there's no change of physiological adaptions because the idea here is you have cranks that are independent bicycle cranks that replace your normal cranks. And the independent means that you have to move each leg independently. You cannot rely on momentum or them being linked together to get a pedaling motion happening. So it's trying to help you get better efficiency and hone down your form and strengthen the muscles for the up pull, which is really hamstrings and hip flexors. So you can see why I thought they were a bit of a novelty because they don't seem like they directly apply in any way to getting more power out on the bike even though they're called power cranks. But looking at them a little bit more and reading about them, they're starting to fascinate me because the accounts of cyclists, when they first try them, it seems like it's impossible to get in a decent ride. And then you have someone like Sam emailing me and telling me that he's done a crit with them, which sounds really amazing to me. So I'm just putting the call out there. If you have used them, I'd love to hear your experiences because I'm sitting on the fence at the moment. They're very expensive in relation to... You can buy a power meter for the cost of these instead. So if you don't have a power meter, 
there has to be a great benefit to using these, and it's only going to be for your off-season as well. So if you've got experience, I'd love to hear more about it because I really am interested in finding out some more anecdotal evidence that it's working for people. But definitely, if this sounds something crazy that you might be into, I'll put the link in the show notes and you can check them out. And now that quote from the top of the show, it's Alex Howe talking about beards and mustaches. This was in the Welter last year where he had a competition with a couple of other riders to see who could go the longest without shaving. And it seems like he has dogged determination when it comes to these types of competitions. So I'll link you up to a great picture story on Manual for Speed about Alex. He's a young cat from Boulder, Colorado, riding for Garmin Sharp, and he's definitely a solid challenger for Hipster of the Year against Garmin's own other contender, Lachlan Morton. But definitely keep your eye out for Alex this year. You can't miss him if he's in hipster mode, but he should be at some bigger tours this year. So all the best for the year, Alex. And that's it for this week. You have been listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast. Remember, to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash epic to catch any information from this show. Also, Semipro Cycling is now on Facebook. I'll be adding some new stuff there that you won't be able to find anywhere else. So go check it out. Get involved. Say hello. Until next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 